Hello, and welcome to Barks Remarks, the podcast where we talk about the stories from the legendary Carl Barks, creator of Scrooge McDuck and writer and artist of the greatest Donald and Scrooge comics of all time. Join us as we explore his longer adventure stories in their chronological publishing order. We'll talk about what makes them so enduring, their historical context, and how well they hold up today. So get out your reprint and get ready to enjoy our remarks. Welcome back to Bark's Remarks. I'm Mark Severino, a grown man who enjoys duck comics and enjoys talking about them with friends and guest hosts. We are back for another landmark holiday story. We're going to be talking today about Carl Barks' classic, A Christmas for Shacktown. And I'm very pleased to be joined by two returning guests. I'm going to have them introduce themselves. Why don't we go with Warren first? Hey, Mark. Hey, Sarah. This is Warren Harmon in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, Glad to be back again uh, talking about another Christmas uh, classic-related story uh, from Carl Barks. And uh, looking forward to our discussion today. And Sarah. I'm Sarah Santiago. Where? my best Christmas pajamas for this very special Christmas in Shacktown podcast. That's right. We've got a a Christmas in April here, which is our recording time. I like that um, doing these chronologically just makes me aware of how many Christmas stories Carl Barks had, but uh, there's there's a lot to cover. It really stands out for a lot of fans. Uh, A little bit of background about the story, A Christmas for Shacktown. We're still in Barks' golden age. This one was published in November of 1951. Unlike many of his Christmas stories, this one was released as one of the four-color comics. You know, a lot of them were um, put out in kind of limited publications like Christmas Parade, but this one is four-color 367. And uh, this one's been reprinted just a ton. I counted 13, including the original. I think it's fair to say that this is this is his most famous Christmas story, right? Christmas on Bear Mountain is very famous because it introduced Scrooge McDuck. But I, I think if you asked someone to name a Carl Barks Christmas themed story, this is probably the one that most fans would go to. This is a full length 32 page story. And what really interests me about this one is is its focus on poverty. It, it's it's going to hit us right away with some really stark images of really striking poverty, poorness, in a way that I don't think you really see in a lot of pop culture from the era. I would hazard a guess that a lot of kids in the 1950s, this might have been one of the one of the first times that like a middle class comic book buying kid might have been confronted by this kind of poverty. Glad you mentioned that because here we are in post-war America and we've got prosperous advertising going on and everybody's moving to the suburbs and everybody's happy and the war's over. And yet Barks is brave here, I think. And we'll talk a little bit about it. I I just think his his bravery in depicting poverty of the other side of America for everyone to see, the kids grabbing these comics, was a really brave move and a bold move for him to depict this. And I'm not sure what the editors thought. Yeah, for sure. It was brave. Right. Because this this is a period where like he is getting some editorial pushback from like using humans too much. Um, You can tell that sometimes he wants to push the envelope 
a little bit here. And this is a big departure, right? Because like it's it's a Christmas story. Christmas stories are generally meant to be uplifting, happy-go-lucky. So um, it's a bold move in some ways. And it's interesting too, because it's very much at odds with like the ethos of one of the characters that's in this story, right? We've got this really weird like contradiction between this emphasis on poverty in the story. And of course, the appearance of Scrooge McDuck, who is like a, a major part of it and, and who really represents wealth and the, the tycoon ethos. And that's something that that's impossible not to think about. Right, Sarah? <laughs> yeah, that was definitely impossible for me to ignore. And it, it, it actually interfered with my enjoyment of the story, right? Like if it was just like, oh, uh, a ragtag group does their best to make Christmas a little bit better for some poor people. It would have been easier to stomach, I guess. And, but this whole time, like the, but every so often when they would go back to Scrooge, just refusing to let go of any of the money, it really made him out into a villain in my mind. And like, you know, I know he is, but I'm from the era of DuckTales, and I grew up with a Scrooge McDuck that wasn't such a greedy, mean guy, right? And I know he was, you know, he shares a name with the Scrooge from Dickens, and so, you know and, I... and living in Scotland, I also don't want to hate him because I love Scotland, and I love <laughs> Scott, so it was harder for me to enjoy this one. Well, it, it might help contextualize this, right, to know that this is literally one full-length issue before Barks is going to get the, the call, the request from his editors to deliver them a 32-page Scrooge story for the first time. And Barks has been using Scrooge as a side character for the most part up till now. And it's kind of been like this varying level of almost villainy, comic foil, or, or a plot device when the ducks need someone to be able to foot the bill for something like a trip to, to the Riviera. But in a, in a few months after this is published, they're going to ask him to deliver a, a Scrooge story, and he's going to get this big opportunity to basically spin off his own character into a featured story, which will be the very next four-color publication. And Barks realizes, he understands that he's going to have to soften the character but he's really going to expand the character. And there's already been some softening that's been going on. You can tell because it's obvious he likes the character, but you can tell that he wasn't really keeping this continuity in mind and he hadn't yet fleshed him out at this point. So I think in this story, he really is supposed to be kind of a contrast with the poverty-stricken kids of Shackton. I liken this story to a short film, all the twists and turns and plot twists and everything that happens in the story. I just see this as a standalone little feature film where the character of Uncle Scrooge is playing this greedy, greedy person. It reminded me a lot of It's a Wonderful Life. If you think about it, that was produced five years earlier by Frank Capra. But Uncle Scrooge is the Mr. Potter, where there's this 
this constant greed. At the end, we see, I think we see the softening of Scrooge, and to Mark's point, the launching of the Scrooge series, Only a Poor Old Man. I think this episode here features this villainous, greedy Scrooge. And we accept it. It bothers us, but we accept it as a standalone. And I'm I'm glad that, that he does actually become his own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're not going to see his redemption in this story at all. No. And he's he's <laughs> never going to get like a full redemption, but he, he is going to soften after this. I do want to point out that he is not as hateful or abusive for Donald in this one. And I did pick up on that and appreciate it. Yeah. yeah I, good point. Th- there's... There's definitely some like nice family sort of connection in this one. I was talking to you guys beforehand how like there are three Christmas stories that to me really stand out and they stand apart. And it's because they're the the top rated Christmas stories and they're the top ones that kind of take place in Duckburg. It's like Christmas in the city. Um, it's this one, Christmas for Shacktown. It's You Can't Guess that we got to get together for. And it's Letter to Santa. Technically, Christmas on Bear Mountain is ranked higher than them if you look on like the index ranking. But that's such a different story. It's a, it's a more intimate one. To me, you know, these are kind of the, the triumvirate of Duck Fam family ones that bring in Scrooge. They bring in sometimes Gladstone and Grandma Duck and Daisy Duck. And it's fun to me to see the Duck family come together because he he usually really only did that in these holiday stories. And I like to see them interacting with each other. All right, you guys. So as always, I do like to pander to our international fans by going over some of the different translations for the title that have been used around the world. And I found this one really interesting because Shacktown is such a, a loaded sort of term, right? I think if you're in the States, if you're not an English speaker, you may not get sort of the flavor of it, right? But a Shacktown really implies a certain type of temporary squalor that was not intended intended to be lived in forever, but might be home to generations of people in some pretty extreme poverty, kind of off the grid, disconnected from from the rest of society. And um, Sarah, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. So in Spain, they called it Navidad en Via Miseria, which is Christmas in Misery Village. Yeah. And I, when I looked this one up, I noted that in Spain, Every publication translated it as something completely different. So I just picked one of the, the Spanish ones. Uh, how about you, Warren? Yeah, Italy. Uh, the Italian uh, title is Paparone Zio e el Ventino Fatale, which is Uncle Scrooge and the Fatal Twenty. And it got me thinking about what is the Fatal Twenty? You know, could it be the Twenty Lira? Maybe that they're translating into the value of the the burning dime, if you will. I, I thought that was a little different from interpreting Shacktown. Sure, yeah. It's an interesting title. And, and I found it interesting that in the Scandinavian countries, they went with a kind of an odd translation that that's roughly Christmas in penniless. And but it was like it's something like Yul e Pengelens in Norway and Yul e Pengalosa in Sweden, um, and something very similar in Denmark. 
I also thought it was interesting. One of the commenters on the Facebook page, Jorn Egil Obdal, I'm probably getting his name wrong, but he had commented that in the Nordic countries for the first reprint, they took out nine pages of this story, totally excising the part about the kids that lived in poverty, not wanting to, you know, expose readers to that. Mm. So another interesting one I, I liked in France, it was En Noël au pauvre ville. Christmas in Poorville, and then Germany is Weihnachten für Kummersdorf, Christmas for Grief Village. <laughs> so I like I like all these names for Shacktown. So um, we're gonna go ahead, and uh, I, I'm gonna summarize this one, and you guys are gonna let me know your thoughts as we go along. So Christmas for Shacktown, you know, as I alluded, it opens very starkly. It has the nephews having taken a little shortcut through what we are going to learn is called Shacktown. And they're basically, they're talking to each other about Christmas. They're talking about Shacktown. They're talking about how guilty and terrible they feel walking through this gully where the people of Shacktown don't know anything about Christmas at all. And they find it as they leave Shacktown, they're finding it hard to be happy about the prospect of Christmas coming up. They're really dwelling on this. It, it, it seems like one of those interesting kind of crystallizing moments that a lot of people have as a kid, where if, if you grow up well-to-do or, or comfortable, um, you're suddenly confronted with like stark poverty and it really hits you. And you can you can really see this in the nephews. I think what adds to the the uh, impact of that first panel is the, the absence of adult figures there. There's not one adult in there. They're all children, so the children relate to the children. And the artwork, stunning of course but what caught me was the the inking of the blackness in the streets which only stays in shacktown and it doesn't go into duckburg so i wanted to point that out so it's oh, a good a point it is a stew it's and it's a good point about that lack of adults right because child poverty hits us way worse right as absolutely as... absolutely and it's making a statement to the children who are buying these comics yeah and what do you think sarah about some of the like visual signals of poverty that he's sending here they're very striking i mean there are kids that there's a kid playing with cans when they're talking about when the boys are talking about whether or not the kids in Shacktown have toys and that kid's not even wearing gloves or pants. He's, his knees are bare. Yeah, we've we've got kids like with patched threadbare clothes, kids that are just huddling for warmth. They're all sullen. Um, they really look miserable. It's It's really, it's not subtle, but I think it's very effective. In that first panel, there is what I read as a woman carrying i don't know if that's wood or firewood okay okay and i actually read her as the only adult yeah. in the area but i could see an argument made for it to be maybe a kid who grew up too soon and now has all this responsibility that's but how the, I look at it, yeah. the expression on her face uh, you know once again barks is so good her face just is so evocative of the famous picture from the depression where the woman is just gazing off into the distance with her two kids hanging on her and just so worried about everything, obviously. And, and it's not just sadness, it's worry. 
complete lack of security. Yeah, very good points. I um I did read her as an older child, maybe a teenager who's had to grow wow. up too fast and and been and been deprived. And and the reason is because I I think Barks is going out of his way to never throughout the whole story to only dwell on the children. But I, I could see because because yeah, she's got these sunken eyes that look like that look very grown up, unfortunately. So so as the children leave Shacktown, they um they encounter Daisy and, you know, she reacts very, in a very expected way to their sad expression. She's like, you should be happy. Christmas is coming up. And they explained that, you know, they've just walked through Shacktown and it is making them feel like fat pigs is the expression that they use again. Um, they feel like they, they have too much. And it's interesting, you guys, to me, how Daisy refers to Shacktown. She clarifies to them, you know, is, that's that awful place in the gully where people live that are down on their luck. It's such a euphemistic way. You can tell that Daisy doesn't think about Shacktown if she can avoid it right. at all. And, and that causes Daisy to kind of dwell on the situation and she decides that, you know, hey, the women of her club have been looking for something to do. So she gets a, she gets the bright idea to do something about this. And she tells the nephews that, you know, she's going to take care of it. I like the reflective nature of Daisy here. How she, first of all, look how we, we introduced, we're introduced to her. She looks absolutely beautiful. She's dressed better than we've ever seen her maybe in any story prior to this. And then, and then her, her comment, Mark, that you said about uh, that awful place quickly becomes, I think, guilt-ridden. She shook up, yeah. And uh, then, then the immediate joy of realizing that she and her friends can do something to help. What do you think, Sarah? Is everyone in this story looking to absolve themselves? <laughs> it 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 felt very how do i make these bad feelings go away i know i'll do i'll slap a band-aid on it to me <laughs> yeah um in terms of like when later on we see so much of like the system as represented by scrooge mcduck how easy it would be to redistribute wealth but I do appreciate that she does, as as Warren said, get more reflective about it and think like, okay, here's what's within my means. Here's what I can do. I will pose this to the women's group and we'll get this sorted. Yeah. So we have this nice transition now to Donald and Donald has his own problem. This is a very like lower middle class problem that a lot of people in, in American capitalist consumerist society have every year, right? It's the end of the year where a lot of bills come due and you are also expected to put on this great holiday. And so he is stressing about giving his nephews a nice Christmas while only having five bucks to his name. Um, Barks establishes, you know, there's no paydays coming up. No one's going to loan him a dime. And there's a lot of stuff to buy. And, and to make matters worse, he has overheard the nephews say that they're planning to spend $5 for his present. Um, so he's really feeling insecure about his, his ability to provide for his family. And at the end of the page, Daisy knocks on the door and she has this great line. 
Sarah, what, what's her line there? Donald, I came to you with my problem because I know your Christmas worries are so small. <laughs> and Donald responds to her in this just great sardonic wry way. This is like maybe my favorite version of Donald here, right? This like knowing Donald who's like very, it's very witty to me. So he says they were. And when Daisy explains that her her club needs fifty dollars, he he goofily asks her, you know, in pennies, nickels, or Comanche wampum. I don't think we would make that kind of joke today, but it it felt no. it it felt like a common trope then. Um, and and she clarifies onto the next page that she's not asking him for the money, but she explains that you know her club, her women's club is set in the process of setting up a really nice Christmas party for the poor children of Shacktown. And, and we see the boys in the background trimming the tree and they're beaming at this news. And uh, she, she lets him know that they're, they're just a little bit short of their target. And she's hoping that he might know someone who could donate the remaining $50 that's necessary. And she explains that the remaining money is to get turkeys and a toy train for the children. And she and the nephews talk Donald into approaching their uncle Scrooge to ask for the remaining money. And this all happens in this like whirlwind of activity where Donald is just roped into this, what yeah. he knows is going to be a terrible request to make of Scrooge McDuck because he'll, he'll particularly hate that toy train which is going to become a very key part of the story. Sarah. I did want to point out for context that in $50 in the context of this comic would be worth $538.62 today. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's yeah. not a small amount of money that she's asking for. And even $5 on get Christmas gifts, you know, that's, it, it feels small to spread across three boys, but that's a lot of, for them to have maybe saved or earned and then be willing to spend on, on Uncle Donald. If $50 was that much, $5 had to be worth almost $50, you know, I mean, right. it, it, the, the inflation, but, but we see Donald in a good light, but I love those last two panels because Daisy is literally pushing him out the door and not, not wanting to go along with them. And the nephews usually later in the stories that he'll look they'll accompany Donald to, to go see their uncle, but no, you're on your own buddy. And, but I, I, I love, I love the gesture here. Yeah. These interactions are great. So, so the next sequence has Donald approaching his uncle Scrooge and 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 we've got this great shot of Scrooge. Um, everything is just getting established so quickly here in the beginning. He's literally shoveling money into his bin, and he is pondering about his problems, right? So we have all these problems um, at the beginning, and they're all different degrees. That we know that the kids, it's the kids of Shacktown who have the real problem. They're stuck in squalor and poverty. Donald has a problem that ultimately is, is not that big of a problem, but it feels very potent, 
right? Because it cuts to his insecurity for being able to provide a nice Christmas. And Scrooge's problem is that he can't fit his uncountably huge fortune in its physical space. He's trying to stuff it in with all sorts of tools and implements into his vault, into his massive money bin. He's annoyed to be interrupted by a knock at the door um, and he greets whoever it is with that old Scrooge standard about to light his Boer War cannon. We saw that in Pixelated Parrot. I remember That's when right. he greeted him at the door. Yeah. I love that. I love the welcoming. It, it is a classic Scrooge trope, Sarah. I don't know if that's something that you you associate with Scrooge, but um, but this is like this is a typical Scrooge greeting. He got it as surplus after the Boer War. Oh, okay. No, I wasn't familiar with that, but they they do reuse it quite. It gets a lot of mileage in this one. Yeah, and and as Donald um, as Donald opens the door, it's interesting to me that both of them have these thoughts, right? It's not an exchange. Scrooge Scrooge is like just grumpy about almost wasting a shot, and Donald realizes that he's particularly mean today. He's feeling ornery, so he decides that his approach is going to be to kind of strongman Scrooge. He's, there's no point in like making a polite request for $50. He grabs him by the um, broadcloth and tells him that he wants $50. And Scrooge gives back, you know, he, he's not going to be intimidated by someone asking him for money. And as Scrooge continues to try to shove his fortune into its vault, Donald explains what the ask is for. And he, he starts out by talking about the turkeys, you know, because that's the most reasonable thing. They want to give the kids of Shacktown a nice Christmas. Um, that's what the first $25 is for. And then, Warren, what's the second $25 for? And how, how does he react? Well, it's for the toy train for the kids. And uh, Scrooge is not as uh, pleased with that because, uh, as he says, great gush and gold mines, uh, a useless toy train. It, he just goes off on Donald and, and can't understand why children would want such a useless toy. But he agrees to give him the $25 for the turkey. I mean, I actually question why they're buying one $250 train <laughs> for everybody. Instead, instead of a lot of, of little gifts. Yeah. A lot of little gifts. But I wouldn't say that I'm on Team Scrooge for this one. Right. This is going to be a big theme through the rest of the story, right, is, is the, the importance of the toy train as a plaything. The toy train was a very, very symbolic uh, middle-class toy at the time. I have home movie footage of me at two years old, and that was in 1959, so we're a little later, but I'm playing with a toy train that is encircling the tree, literally, in a color little Kodak 8mm movie. And it's wonderful to watch that because that was so stereotypical as the this automated whatever this train mm -hmm. uh, toy uh, that families had to have and I think there was this symbol even in the early 50s when Barks wrote this that the toy train represented a bit of affluence and so if you can have that and share that with the less fortunate you're doing something or at least you're making an effort and I think that was a symbol there yeah there's something aspirational about it huh so Scrooge, you know, he's given him this ultimatum, get 25 bucks and you'll get the other 25 bucks. At least it's not a flat out refusal. 
So he bum rushes Donald out the door. There's a great little gag that the outside of his his door says Scrooge McDuck, world's richest duck. And there's a taped on sign and darn well going to stay that way. Uh, and so Daisy and Donald and his nephews, they all commiserate and they talk about their next steps. And um, the nephews really, they, they really step up here. Sarah, do you want to tell us about what they decide? While the adults are are busy kind of whining, the the kids are like, we're going to start right now. We're going to do it. And uh, they decide to give up the money that Donald was going to spend on them and that uh, they would also like to give up the money they were going to spend on Donald. So that's $10 right there. And then... And then they're going to get the junior woodchucks together to shovel sidewalks, and that'll raise another five. And then Daisy is inspired by the boys and decides to sell $5 worth of tatting. And they've all run off into their own, to, to start their own adventures. And then um, Lonely here all of a sudden so comes from a thought bubble above Donald's head. And he has to figure out how to make that last five. Yeah. That's right. So it's this very natural progression here. And his his first attempt is by asking a random guy with a huge family behind him if he'd like to donate to a Christmas party for poor kids. And and the guy is a wise guy. He asks, sure, how many kids you want? <laughs> <laughs> and and it's 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 a very silly gag, but it's pretty funny. And next he approaches another guy who's dressed as a cowboy. And before he can ask him if he'd like to donate, the guy asks him, would you like to donate to a Christmas party for cowboys that can't yodel? It's just a goofy little offhand gag, but this is this is pretty funny. We've got Bark's rule of three here, right? We've got um, three attempts he's going to make to ask someone to donate. And the last one is is the best one because he he outright jumps a guy and he tells him, mister, you're going to donate to a Christmas party for poor kids. And this guy tells him, I'd like to, buddy. Warren, what, is, what does this guy tell him? I'd like to, buddy, but I, I'm on my way to pay a bill I owe to Scrooge McDuck. And so we're right back to uh, someone in debt, in debt to uh, Scrooge. And uh, I, love, I love that last panel. I have to say, well, can't be an excuse like that. I mean, that's exactly how he's feeling. Yeah, I want to point out, in this sequence, and I love the rule of threes there, you're right, he just does that all the time and it just pays off in that last one. Um, you see the sign on the on the fence there, um, and this is the second sign you see in Duckburg thing that uh, Scrooge, it just, it, it, it just builds on that greed of Scrooge. I'm selling used oil wells in the first one, and here's, um, I'm selling 300 used gold mines uh, to make tunnels. And again, interesting how these foreshadowing statements grow. I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. Warren, because Barks is doing this great job here, even on these panels where Donald has left, referencing back to Scrooge's wealth, Scrooge's uh, cheapness, yeah. um, Scrooge having other people in his debt, you know, it's, <laughs> it's great signaling. And so, you know, Donald has really struck out here. So he's decided he's going to get creative. And we get this really fun sequence where he consults the old family album and he ends up dressing up and posing as Scrooge's old uncle Jake um, to try to 
sell him a sob story. And when he gets to Scrooge, Scrooge is initially very pleased to see him. Sarah, do you want to do you want to tell us uh, about their exchange? Donald comes in at, dressed as Uncle Jake. Scrooge says, who in blazes are you? And Donald in his disguise with his hand on his back and leaning on a walking stick. Your poor old, your poor. Can, yeah. <laughs> it's, it indicates that he's rolling the R like, a, like the Scots would. And old, A-U-L-D, which is the Scots word for old. Uncle Jake, Scroogey, don't you remember me? <laughs> I love the over-the-top R trill there. I do, too. And Scrooge says, I sure do. Turns out that um, Scrooge has fond memories from childhood, but at some point he lent one shilling to Uncle Jake, which with interest after 63 years is $8,326 that Uncle Jake owes Scrooge. Uh, which in today's money is $98,017. Nice. Do you mind if I do a quick reading of it just to see how, how oh, I yeah, sound? Yeah, yeah. Sure. So he, he asks him, who in blazes are you? And Donald in his disguise says, you're poor old Uncle Jake Scrooge, me by. Don't you remember me? I, I love his over-the-top attempt at a Scottish accent. Outstanding, Mark. That was great. <laughs> I, it yeah. probably probably came off as more Irish than anything. But um, <laughs> I love this because this is one of the great bits that he's going to go to this well for a lot. The, the, the compound interest gag. He always talks about at, at compound interest. And then, you know, this is a funny offhand little reference to this obscure family member that's going to get, uh, Don Rosa is going to make some nice hay of this later on when he's doing his life and times of, of Scrooge McDuck. So I, I like this Uncle Jake sequence. I found it really memorable. And it's one of those few times where he really does signal his Scottishness too, because mm -hmm. he doesn't really do that very often. No. And so, you know, Donald's striking out again, and now he realizes that he's got to, what he needs to do is he needs to scare it out of him. And so he, he rushes home to grab the kid's pet rat. And again, he returns when Scrooge has almost got the money fully pushed in. So every time Donald approaches him, Scrooge is just more annoyed because he's interrupting his money packing. And um, Donald makes this reference to it being so cold out. He wanted to see if Scrooge might have an inside job for him. And, and this is a great pun here, right? Because what is an inside job, Warren? <laughs> well, an inside job, Donald wants to work indoors and get inside the vault, certainly, so he can release the rat. But uh, it's an inside job. It's, it's within... The family structure it's something conniving within right from within you know, an organization from within Someone an organization on... yeah yeah and i think this is an inside job um it meant both ways so right I like that. yeah because donald is is squirreling the rat away and he's going to release that rat and and predictably you know scrooge freaks out when he sees the rat worrying that he's going to chew up a million dollars worth of bills and donald tells him He'll help him out, but that he wouldn't touch the dangerous beast for a cent less than five dollars. And when when Scrooge, who, who has really no choice, agrees to pay him, he 
he's like, oh, well, what a coincidence. I happen to have some cheese in my pocket. And he lures the rat to back to him. And uh, Scrooge is pretty outraged because he knows that there is, again, another good pun here. He says, I smell more than one rat in this deal. But Donald has successfully pulled one over on him. What do you guys think? Are you outraged at Donald's deception here? I think that he is illustrating why he's in his particular financial situation and Scrooge is in his because the cost of the disaster, like the the potential loss that Donald is about to incur is a million dollars by his estimation. And Donald only asks for $5. Like he could have named any number up to a million and it would have been cheaper so um, I think Donald should have charged more. <laughs> but Donald only charged what he needed. And that was interesting to just strengthen the comedy of the scene is that even that Uncle Scrooge, I'm sure internally had to think about it for a split second. But but again, to save the million dollars. Um, I like how he shows up with the with the trench coat, the collar turned up. Um, he's got the rat hidden behind him. And again, just like the scene before with introducing him in the in disguise it's just another little one page sight gag to just keep pushing the story further and further in it's very economical and for the nice like as a nice disney inside joke the rat is styled to look very much like mickey mouse <laughs> there's that long snout there's a there's a bit of mickey in there yeah you know he reminds me of um of uh, Mickey's rival in in that cartoon. What's his name? Mortimer Mouse, I think. Do you guys know that one? Yeah. Anyway, the ducks do get back together and they've all had exactly the right amount of success. The woodchucks have earned money. Daisy's earned her money. They pool it all together. They're very celebratory. And then they realize that, um, oh no, the rat in Donald's pocket has actually chewed up that bill. He was foolish enough to put them in the same pocket. Um, He gets off a nice rats and he sulks away. And Warren, do you want to tell us um, about his his little blow up in the park? Yeah, it starts out after he discovers that the rat chewed up the $5 bill. It it starts out with a sequence of panels that happened to be some of my favorite in the story. Uh, this despondent Donald walking off in the snow in the upper left hand of that page is, is probably my favorite panel for a lot of reasons. It's just It just shows that he's he's had it and he doesn't know what to do next. Uh, adding the uh, word rats, it just double <laughs> doubles that feeling. But he moves off into this lonely park, uh, snow-filled. Uh, there's a single solitary bench there. He has a moment of disgust and slams his hat down. But then he sits with that trench coat with the collar pulled up, and, and he's just worried now. As his hat stands there, it sits there face up, a solid uh, coin drops in the cap, and he beams and realizes that this is a, a money-making scheme here, that, that maybe he'll just sit there and his fortune will come back. Yeah, that's right. A nice little bit of happenstance. So we transition back to Scrooge, who has finally gotten the safe door seal. I, I like this, that Scrooge has been working at this basically the whole story. Yeah. So we really understand how hard it's been. And Scrooge heads home, and we get a reference to his cheapness where he alludes to saving a nickel car fare by walking through the park where he does encounter Donald. And he's disgusted to see him resorting to begging. But Donald points out that he's made a dollar 
in five minutes. And so Scrooge gets over any vestiges of pride and he shoves Donald out of the way so that he, the world's richest man, can spend a little bit of his free time begging for another, like like a, maybe another dollar. And he even tries to turn his coat up to look penniless. Any thoughts here, Sarah? That is also very bad math. <laughs> yes. It's, it's the, the silver dollar is equivalent to about 1177. Um, and even if he's making one silver dollar a minute, he surely is making more just in passive income from investments and such. Um, it is it is literally not worth the time it takes for him to stop what he's doing and lean over and pick up that that little amount of money. I, you know, avarice does weird things to you. I can see why Uncle Scrooge might think that's a good idea. Right. But it, if, it's... if panhandlers could make money, like that much money, then everybody would be a panhandler, which I think also would be a good illustration of Scrooge's disconnect from the rest of the world. Right. It, it's very cartoonish. Um, it's very unlikely. But it's it's great. Just this, that, you're right. That's kind of one of those memes that people share about very rich people, right? Like Bill Gates, do you know it doesn't even make sense for him if he sees $20 on the ground just to bend over and pick it up because in that span of time, blah, blah, blah. We've even used calculators for like, if, if we're trying to decide whether or not to buy something and it's X amount of on sale for X amount off and you make Y amount of money, if you've thought more than Z amount of time, you've already wasted the money. The equivalent like in time. If you, yeah, the equivalent in time. And this is one of Bark's go-tos, um, this kind of penny-wise, pound-foolish behavior that Scrooge is going to do. Because yes, he's mm -hmm. rich and he got rich for a reason, but he's also very greedy. And, uh, and, and those two things are in conflict with each other. This, this next page is really interesting. This little point of view of the Shacktown kids. Tell us about them, Sarah. So then in the next page, we've uh, been transported back to Shacktown and there's a group of the children standing around They and they look so much happier. And the, the comic says, meanwhile, the kids of Shacktown have been making wonderful plans. But in my notes, I wrote, Meanwhile, the anarcho-communist collective in Shacktown makes plans to build the toy train, bearing in mind the needs of its disabled member, Joey. Because as they're talking about how excited they are to have this toy train, which apparently they have no problems sharing, they're all going to take pride and joy in it. One kid points out that they should build a, the track on the corner by crippled Joey's shack so he can see the train go by. And that is just such a great way to use, to, to point out how you can keep the needs of disabled people in mind when you do things for yourselves if you are not disabled. So like this tiny little bit of like disability advocacy just like melted my heart. And I just love these kids in, in Shacktown. And it, and it made me, it made me happy that Barks included it in this specific manner instead of you know using a disabled kid as inspiration porn as or as writers and storytellers are so want to do. It is a really lovely 
moment, right? And it, it always stood out to me because it does show these kids in such a great light that they're really going out of their way, left to their own devices to be inclusive and to think about joey and the the other kids are saying yeah we'll we'll rig a string to his bed so he can ring the engine bell we'll all have fun like they're really like here's how we do this so that we don't leave somebody behind like good job shacktown and i love how carl barks is doing this intentionally to call this out to his readers his other kid readers to as you said sarah um to look on those that are very less fortunate and those that are disabled to say that they also can have joy. And I, I just really felt warm in these first few panels. It's it's excellent modeling on how to include, how to be inclusive. Yeah, yeah it is. On everyone's face. And, and it's notable too, because there wasn't necessarily an organized movement to do that around this time. I mean, there were definitely people advocating for this, but it wasn't like, I don't think it was something that had permeated. He certainly wouldn't have been thinking. I think this to him was probably just a way to show these kids in the most positive light and to increase the stakes for when things are going to go so wrong in the story. Like we want to see these kids made happy because first we've seen them in squalor looking sad, but now we get to see them being kids and being like the best kind of kids they can. And how about that little girl with that light in her eyes saying, after that boy says, we'll all have fun. She says, more fun than we ever had in our lives. Mm -hmm. And you can like just hear the soft music, the the little piano (laughs) tinkling in the background. And that's such a great background obviously her face is so expressive but her head and her like her her top is encircled by this warm yellow and orange light almost yeah Yeah, halo (laughs) and so back to donald you know he still needs to figure out what to do and we get this this if you're a barks fan and if you've read a, a lot of these stories this is a hilarious moment because donald's face lights up and he says, glory be, who do I see? And he is delighted to see <laughs> Gladstone Gander, his lucky, lucky cousin. And he like, he skips over to see him. And Warren, why is this so funny? Well, as you know, I love Gladstone and, and the rivalry that we've seen uh, between Gladstone and Donald for so long. And now Donald wants Gladstone's incredible luck to raise him four more dollars. And that's really the only reason he's lucky to see his cousin. So he skips over there and he sees him and and and, and their exchange for the most part is, is pretty good. As typical, uh, Gladstone doesn't want to work hard to wish for something. And, uh, but when Donald explains that, that the, about the party that they want to throw the children in Shacktown, Gladstone says, sure, you know, but they, they kind of work together here. And that's what I love about this sort of little sequence. I think they partnered here more than they ever have. What do you think, Mark? I really like this. I Gladstone's a funny character, but in big doses, he can get a little bit of trying. And, and I found it really refreshing mm-hmm. to see him kind of come down for a moment. I, I like it when he softens just a little bit. You know, I love their I love their partnering on the on the plot to uh, stand under windows in this uh, this hotel uh, across the street and wait for 
the wallets to fall from the windows. I mean, who does that? I, I, know. Know, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. But again, it sets it up for another classic comic moment. And again, this is like the fourth or fifth one in the, in this in this issue. They work together. Uh, and even Donald has an idea to go stand in there and uh, happily agrees to stand under there. And then comes the infamous hot dime. I also liked the teamwork and how when they put aside their differences and work for some towards something bigger than they are, they actually, you know, get along quite well. And then the hot yeah. dime, yeah. which yeah. burns a hole through Gladstone's hat, but uh, ends up also melting the snow toward a wallet and they find a wallet. Full of a yeah. lot of cash. Right. It's it's really refreshing. And and this dime feels like such a potent little oh. um a little symbol, right? And I like how Donald when Donald leaves after they've managed to, you know, have this goofy scene where I, I like I like the notion of pride here too, right? Gladstone's not afraid of looking silly, standing waiting for money to just fall out of the sky. But but as Donald leaves, he has this like idea that he wants that dime, the one that some joker heated up to burn through Gladstone's hat. And Gladstone cautions him to be careful with it because it brought him good luck. And he knows that that could bring Donald bad luck. And this is really the uh, the the terrible moment where we we have an inkling that something is likely to go wrong. Because Donald, Donald's have been having some nice outcomes here because he is thinking about other people. But right. as soon as he gets the idea to, to, to play a prank on him, which he does by, by goofily dropping that dime in his beggar's top hat, um, we, we get a panel, a narrator box from Barks signaling if Donald could know the awful calamity this dime is going to cause. Mm -hmm. I really like that tension building that Barks yeah. does there, right? Because um, he signals that there's going to be something awful happening. I feel like Donald, that's what he's hoping for. I don't think so. I think he just no. wants to goof on his uncle. He wants to get his goat. He just can't resist. You know, Scrooge muscled him out of that spot. So this is just a little like, yeah, haha, take that. That's yeah, what I think. That's how I read it, Sarah. And I also think uh, with, with Barks, again, classically letting the reader know that uh, keep reading because things are going to get really interesting here. Again, this foreshadowing throughout this whole story about the dime and about the tunnels and everything is is all so subtle. I, I love this next panel, Mark, you know, as, as they're all celebrating. Yeah, they get back together. The, the last step in their fundraising now is to get the rest of the money that Scrooge promised them. So they, they head to him just as he gets discouraged and he heads back to his money bin because that, that one dime... It may be all he's earned, but it's still worth putting in his bin. Another example, Sarah, of him not valuing his time as much as he values <laughs> his money. Boy, who wants to who wants to tell us about the triggering of the Great McDuck calamity? I'll do it since I am your current resident geological expert <laughs> with my <laughs> three years of geology classes in college. So so Scrooge goes home uh, and tries to put the dime in his money bin. He can't fit it through the door, so he goes up through the roof to slide it in through the skylight. He dump, jumps it, and then he, he says, 
I'll not be able to drop many don't more dimes in here. And the narrator box says, how right you are, Uncle Scrooge. And we see this rumble and the money bin contents just drop through the earth. And Scrooge is left looking at an empty building atop an empty cavern. And I love how it just cuts away from him, right? Giving us a few panels of suspense. Warren, why don't you tell us about the exchange? Sure. I I think that now that Donald and Daisy have shown up, they're looking for Uncle Scrooge. He shows up extremely despondent, probably more than he's ever looked in in any story, um, because, um, you know, you're a dime too late. Uh, Again, referencing the fatal dime that caused the complete collapse of his entire fortune. But Donald doesn't buy that. Now we see... In my opinion, we see the Donald we've been waiting for, that darn it, I want what I want now. Uh, And then we see, again, Scrooge not squirming, but suffering in his own words. I'm broke. The the look on his face reminded me, ironically, of the look on the kids' faces. You know, in this story, uh, Barks is saying, this is how he would look if he was truly broke. Uh, Donald doesn't buy it. You've told us whoppers before. I don't accept it. Go back in there and get me my $25. Scrooge finally has had enough of this and says, look, I'll prove it to you. Opens up the vault door and we see this great splash panel of this cavernous pit where, again, it just, the, the reader is, is led to believe it goes on and on forever. It's it's such a great panel, right? When Donald opens yeah. the bin and he's greeted with, with nothing but a bottomless hole. It looks very dramatic. I, I remember pretty vividly reading this as a kid because I had read so many other money bin stories before I actually read this one. And, and it just seemed like so unlikely and like such a, such a shocking, you know, thing to happen to Scrooge. And well, so it's surreal. How do you, how does he come back from this? I mean, that's, right. the, that's the thing. How does he come back from this? And the next panel is, is the, uh, the sorrow that, that Daisy has the, the, the feeling that she has for him. She's crying um, because he's, uh, he's penniless now. It's it's so funny too because he's wailing. Um, he's calling himself nothing. He's calling himself a poor, penniless old man, which is you know shades mm-hmm. of what the next big story is going to be titled. Um, and and as he is getting upset with Donald for giving him that last dime, the one that caved in the whole caboodle, as he calls it. You're right. Daisy is crying, sniffling, and she's saying the sad part of this is that the poor kids of Shacktown won't have their Christmas party. And it's so, it's so disproportionate, right? I think it's, I don't know. What do you think of that, Sarah? That I mean, it's the commentary on wealth and poverty itself, right? We don't actually see any of the actually poor people in Shacktown crying, even when they're kind of at their lowest, because they've resolved, they've made peace, I guess, with their life. But, you know, when we see a change from this in incredibly wealthy man he can't possibly imagine himself living the kind of life that they already live i i also think that this might be a slight dig at at daisy for being kind of a, a flighty girl who you know doesn't really understand the gravity of of what's happened that's kind of my oh reading. i don't think so i you think don't? she's the only one that's like really thinking about what the actual tragedy is sure. like scrooge is gonna be fine he he'll be fine you guys i i love this next sequence here where scrooge hires the world's best engineers to figure out you know how to recover his money um it it reminds me of the gang of academics in Lost in the Andes 
you know, his version of these like engineers, they're all bearded. They're all very funny looking. They run this um, almost Dr. Seuss-like noise sounding machine and check for echoes. And after a time, they reach their conclusion and they present their findings to Scrooge McDuck. And they inform him that you will never get your money out of there. They've prepared this chart that's entitled Report of Findings in Great McDuck Calamity. And it's such a great visual here. It shows the money bin containing too many tons of money. It shows the huge natural unknown cavern that clearly was right below it. <laughs> and they, they unspool the chart enormously, showing how deep the cavern is and that their money his money pooled down, down to, to the bottom of the cavern. And, and Scrooge asks, you know, can I just lower some buckets and pull the money up? They give him the double whammy bad news that there is, in fact, another thin crust below that money. Um, and that the slightest jiggling would cause it to break through into bottomless quicksand. <laughs> Doesn't get any worse than that. Last in geologist. It, it's it's pretty ridiculous, I'm sure. Um, the notion of these like multiple caverns beneath and, and quicksand that far down. You know, there's the old meme about how I, I thought quicksand was going to be a much more common problem than it ended up being. But but as a kid, you know, quicksand seems like this peril around every corner. So I think that's great. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like how Barks is is basically forestalling every objection, right? Because he has right. Scrooge propose. So let's let's tunnel into it like this. And they remind him that uh, tunneling takes machinery and machinery jiggles. I love the word jiggles so oh. much here. It is so <laughs> out of character of these high-priced, world-class engineers, yet they say it with such certainty. I, I love that panel. I agree. I, I, you're right about that use of the word jiggle because it's like a very whimsical sounding <laughs> word, right? But here it's in reference to this catastrophe. And the whole time that this is going on, you know, the nephews are in the background worrying about how Christmas is getting closer. And so as the story kind of careens towards its conclusion, um, everything is really downcast because Scrooge winds up having to move in with the ducks and the, the other ducks are kind of reconciling what they can still do with the money that they have managed to get, which, which is that they can still have a party it's just going to lack, it's going to lack a certain vital component, right, Sarah? The toy train. I mean, honestly, I feel like that's okay. They'll still have some needs met. They might not have the fun, but also some of the needs are going to be met. They will have their needs met, but I mean, I would argue that like play that is an important need, right? And and isn't that something that charity sometimes like glosses over? I, I think that Barks is making a, a really neat point here because this story is clearly like aligned with Barks' philosophy that like this kind of depredation should not be handled by the redistribution of wealth. This should be handled by private charity. That, that's <laughs> that's where I think, I don't think he has that as a mission statement, but but that's kind of right. where he's coming from. He's but, definitely like making the case that the, yeah, private charity 
rather than structural change is the way the world works. Right. And, Whether and or not he's advocating is, is I think, maybe up in the air. But yeah, you're he's, right. He's at least making a statement here that, that charity can't just be about meeting needs, but it should also be about things like, like addressing childhood joy. Yeah, you're right. Um, I think that's a really good point that you bring up, Mark, about the need for play and how maybe Uncle Scrooge didn't understand it, but Barks is making a case that it is important. Yeah, I, that's a good point too, though, right? Because there's always this push and pull, and Daisy's Ladies Club has has clearly seen the need for both things, even if getting them some Christmas turkeys isn't going to structurally change anything in Shacktown. Right. So um, coming up here, we've got this neat moment where the ducks are all gathering for breakfast, which now includes Uncle Scrooge, because he's come to live with Donald and the boys. And uh, the kids come late to breakfast because they've had this recollection about a time the previous summer when they were hiking with the junior woodchucks, and they encountered a cave in the canyon below Shacktown. And uh, Scrooge immediately realizes that this might be an opportunity for salvation. And so they, uh, they quickly head to this cave. Warren, do you want to tell us a little bit about, about the cave and what they discover? Sure. They're, 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 they're in the little gully, the snow is just piled up, but there's this little cave entrance there, and they all look into it. And as they climb into it, it's quite cavernous, and it does lead them down uh, into uh, which Donald claims is right under the pile of money. Um, so they're in that little thin layer, I, I'm imagining, between the quicksand and the, and the money just sitting above them. And so um, I, I love it that, that Uncle Scrooge can actually smell his money. Uh, yeah. so he, he's sniffing a lot like a little dog and, and uh, realizes that a badger hole and, and the money's at the other end of it, there's a little tiny hole there. And as I said earlier, I think some of the signs pointed to tunnels and tunneling. That wasn't the, what they found, but they found this other way in. And uh, now that's where they sit, uh, trying to figure out what's the best way to get through that tiny tunnel. Right. And it's such a neat way that the story is going to wrap up, right? Yeah. Because um, the nephews have gone off to consult with the junior woodchucks because there's nothing they can't figure out. And and while they're waiting, Donald and Scrooge are, are spending the hours there. And Scrooge is like this, this great picture of mournful despair. He's such a martyr as he's yeah. just, he's just going to wait out there and, and smell his money. Um, he can be close to it. Even if he can't have it, he, he says he'll be as happy as a lark while he's sitting there crying. And just at that point, the nephews do come back and they have gathered the junior woodchucks and collectively rummaged enough of their old toys to get an old train and a bunch of tracks that can um a bunch of flexible tracks that can that can adapt to the contours of that badger hole and uh scrooge you know he he doesn't see what the purpose of this is which of course is the case in the rest of the story but a nephew says yes a silly useless toy train but they make the limber track, follow those contours, and lead right to the money. And there's this great suspenseful moment where they have the train 
slowly back up following the track. The reader gets to see a little cutaway where it backs into the money and um, some of the money indeed lands right into that car. And Uncle Scrooge is able to hear it coming back out of the hole. He can tell that it's, he can hear that it's loaded up with money. Um, and he tells the boys that they've earned his everlasting gratitude. Donald takes a moment to point out that, you know, they, what they need is a cash reward. And so in a moment of generosity, he agrees to give them the first carload of money that comes out of the hole. And it makes its way out with a sheaf of thousand dollar bills, 100 to be exact. Which is a hundred thousand dollars, which in today's money would be one million one hundred seventy seven thousand two hundred forty five dollars. Yeah. So a genuine fortune there. And this, uh, this causes Scrooge to, to faint away and leads up to a, a, a very heartwarming conclusion where Shacktown does get its Christmas. Uh, Warren, you want to tell us about their colossal Christmas? Well, it's certainly a beautiful, joyful panel that we're seeing here with boxes with new shoes and coats and a long, long table with surrounded by children. Christmas trees are decorated. Packages are piled high. There's nothing but abundance here. And there's joy with the new train, the dozens, <laughs> dozens of toy trains. These kids are just having a ball. But mission accomplished. We're all led to believe here that everything is now wonderful in Shacktown, at least for this Christmas. At least for this Christmas. Um, and we've got this great closer where the president of the ladies club wonders where is the kindly old scrooge <laughs> mcduck whose money made all this possible donald says oh i know where he is i'll, I'll take him a drumstick and of course he he's gone into that tunnel and he says i kind of thought i'd find you in here uncle scrooge and scrooge has lost some of the joy that we saw him with last because yeah. he says yeah you'll find me here for a long time too because at the rate that that doggone dinky toy train hauls my money out, I'll be here for 272 years, 11 months, three weeks, and four days. And the last panel is just perfect. Uh, you want to tell, you want to close this out, Sarah? Scrooge and Donald um, are in the foreground with their eyes clenched shut and their fingers in their ears and uh the toy train is coming out of the gopher hole in the back with the caption toot toot yeah and I, and I love that scrooge is wincing at the sound and donald is grinning at the sound oh nice catch on that i did i just saw that oh yeah oh that's wonderful, wonderful. it's a great rye ending I, th I think this one ends pretty much perfectly the way that it's at least as a story, as it's set up. I, I, I love how this action builds yeah. to this last sequence. I love how this story is, is constructed. I love the um, way the story ends and it doesn't seem rushed like some of the other uh, stories that we, that it, it feels in a way that Barks said, oh, I've only got a page or two left. I better close out the story. This one felt paced really well. Yeah, I think you're right. He really lets the ending breathe on this one, and it, and it ends naturally on its own sort of terms. Um, what do you think, Sarah? How do you, do you like how this one wrapped up? I do. Um, I was imagining that it really was a million dollars that they got, and that there was there was some actual like not necessarily structural change preventing 
Scrooge from hoarding so much wealth, but um, at least some of the wealth was redistributed and they got things like shoes and coats. And um, I like to imagine that the people who needed the help were actually consulted on what they needed rather than specifically what the women's group wanted to give them or thought they needed. And there was so much joy and like you said, joy and abundance. Yeah, it was really, and then, you know, just the idea of, of Scrooge, you know, now learning the, what his time is worth. <laughs> I thought that was funny too. He stays That's in true. character too, doesn't Scrooge just stay in character? I mean, after his desperation, he's now angry again. And uh, it closes out on such a surreal note. You know, he's not going to be there for 247 <laughs> Or to, right. It is. But I, I love this, the absurdness of that. But overall, this, this story had a, a feeling of charity for me, for everyone but Scrooge. Yeah, you, you know, it's interesting, too, how it wraps up, because, like, it it doesn't really solve the problem, right? It's like the slow motion resolution of a problem. And it's, it's nice that Barks didn't feel the need to um, really worry about continuity, Right, because this is just going to get etch-a-sketched away at the end. I know that yeah. um, Don Rosa does do a really cool follow-up to this story where he actually does explore, like, how does he get it back? And he kind of ties it into sort of gyro gear loose and how his origin works. <laughs> and, and um, you know, there's an argument to be made that, like, if you worry about tying together all of these details into something coherent and cohesive that it kind of falls apart under its own weight and maybe it doesn't have as much impact but there's also a lot of fun in doing that sort of like origin retconning so I'm kind of of two minds about it and I don't think you have to accept any single uh, Barks or Rosa story as like the definitive version because you know with with hundreds of these stories they can't all happen in the same continuity yeah. um, in the same timeline while Huey, Dewey, and Louie are all in this same era of their childhood so I like to think of each story as its own like take on the ducks and uh, and this one is just so memorable to me this is probably the, the Christmas story of his that I went back and read the most. And then it stuck out in my mind so vividly. I like what you said about how it gets etch-a-sketched away. Like, and, and that's, you know, as a, as a new reader, as somebody who's not really familiar with these comics or, you know, comics in general, where I've already been trained to not pick apart all of the all that the absurdities and and not to take them at face value I do I you know you're you're right the the kids aren't gonna have several Christmases where they're all that same age right without growing I need to remember that word etch-a-sketch that phrase yeah I've that used concept. that term a few times yeah it feels it feels appropriate to me it's it's kind of like how you know Bart Simpson has been in fourth grade for have however many dozen seasons of the simpsons it's just it's right. just one of those if you want to have this if you want to be able to um work with this same universe of characters you you have two choices right you can either you can either be really bound to how they're gonna grow and develop like it's a tv sitcom and you've got live action seasons or you can just tell the stories that you want to frozen in time and i think part of why these stories work so well is because he doesn't worry about continuity 
and and part of my brain is like i really wish that you know there was this character growth and building and that he would reference stuff more often than already happened but i, I just i don't think they would hold up nearly as well if he did another yeah. comic artist that was brilliant at that was charles schultz with the peanuts gang because they stayed forever in our hearts as you know the 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 children that they were and always will be. So it's a it's it's a neat right. little universe to find yourself when you're paging through these comics to know you'll come across another adventure in that same universe and you just shifted time. Exactly. So you guys, what are our kind of like synthesizing thoughts about Christmas for Shaq? Sarah, I know you got a lot to say that you've been thinking about this. I mean, I feel like we covered it here and there. I liked um I liked how Shacktown was presented and how the residents were characterized, right? It it wasn't it it wasn't just painted of a, a picture to make middle class people feel better about themselves. They they really they clearly had their own support systems and like you know, they they clearly took care of each other, you know, because it was clear that the rest of society, you know, wasn't and they they looked out for the least of them when the rest of society couldn't look bother to look out for them. Um, and you're, I think you, I really liked what you had to say about the commentary on how important play was and how Scrooge, you know, obviously the bad guy in this story, you know, was the one discounting it. And um, and and maybe we shouldn't when we think about what our basic needs are. Yeah, I I talk about. In, in my career, I tell parents a lot of the time that play is the work of children, right? Like it's literally, it's their job. It's what they're supposed to do for, for good, healthy development. So that's just one of my, that's kind of my hang up. And I can't believe that 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 left me, you know, we both worked for the same children's services agency. And, and, and that was a message that I took away from working with that organization and I you know I failed to bring it to this comic so thank you for bringing me back home to that yeah well sometimes a reminder is a good thing but um I don't think you like missed it I think I think it's more like an I think it's just more of an assumption that you have built into you at this point what about you, Warren? What are some kind of underlying thoughts you have about this? Uh, two things. One, it was one of Carl Barks's Another Christmas Assignment, I think. I, this is a 32-page longer story uh, about poverty, greed, goodness, and goodness with a Christmas backdrop. I think that's that's how I first saw it. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was this uncovering of poverty that Christmas was a perfect backdrop for it, but I think it could have worked in another storyline. But that's just me. You think that Christmas is kind of incidental to this? I do. I do. I personally do, because I think the 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 braveness of Barks here was uncovering poverty in that first page and showing middle America, all of America in the mid 50s, that this was happening in our country. Don't don't look away from it. The story itself has so many plot turns and so many things. One of the things that I like about it, like you can't guess, was that it featured all the duck characters. Grandma wasn't in this one, but we saw Gladstone and Scrooge and Daisy. Right. So it, it, it was wonderful because in a way it further developed some of these characters. In a way it sharply defined some of Scrooge's 
mannerisms and behaviors and feelings. And I wonder if maybe Karl Barks himself was just becoming a little jaded with his assignment from the editors to do another Christmas story. And I think he just finally said, look, I'm going to tell a story the way I want to tell it. It's going to have evil. It's going to have joy. It's going to have promise and hope. And it's going to have tears. And it's going to have laughter and greed. And it's got all these emotions. And for that reason, I think it's, that's why it's so critically important in the canon of work from Barks. But I would have really, really liked to see this 32-page story develop into a short feature at film. And I, and I liken it to the 1983 Mickey's Christmas Carol. I think there was so much action in this that it would have made a beautiful featurette film. Oh, so, I think yeah. that's a great idea. I think I think this could have made an awesome Christmas special. Oh, yeah. There, there's a ton of um, Bark stories that I would have loved to have seen animated, but you're right that oh. this would work like as a great sort of standalone almost. Well, the, the morality of it and the uh, the lessons that it that it teaches are are kind of similar to even the Charlie Brown Christmas. And it's good, too, that you're pointing out sort of that period, right? It's it's important to keep in mind the early 50s really is that post-war oh. boom, right? Where, where it felt like everyone was getting rich or at least comfortable. But this was a good reminder that there were people who were still left behind. Yes, Awesome. So, so let's uh, let's talk about how this one stacks up. The fans on Index really like this one. This one is is ranked as being one of his all time classics. So on Index, this one gets a rating out of ten of eight point one, which is good for twenty sixth out of all forty one some thousand stories. So extremely high. The only Christmas story that clocks in a little bit higher is A Christmas for Bear Mountain. Um, but, but I think, you know, that one gets a little bit of grade inflation as I see it, just because it is the first appearance of Scrooge McDuck. Yeah. And like, it's technically a Christmas story, but to me, it doesn't really feel that, you know, Christmassy. Um, now look at that right now, Christmas for Shackdown slightly outpaces Christmas on Bear Mountain on the top 100. Well, there you go. All right. So so they're ba they're basically tied. Christmas for Shacktown and Christmas on Bear Mountain basically both rank in in roughly the same position. Right now Christmas for Shacktown is a little bit higher. I would argue that it is Barks's all-time great Christmas story. But but what do you think Warren? I know you're well familiar with the other big Christmas stories. Where do they place for you? I like it a lot. It's just a full rich story. It's very high on my list. But I still think you can't guess is a, give it a bit of a nudge over it for its pureness of Christmas joy, laughter, all the characters coming together and goofiness and silliness. And so I'm going to put you can't guess for me as number one, Christmas for Shacktown, number two, but strong. And then Letter to Santa and, of course, Christmas on Bear Mountain, again, does stand alone. I agree with you there. Sarah, I guess you didn't read Letter to Santa, but you got to read uh, Golden Christmas Tree. So you've gotten at least three Christmas stories in now. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on how they kind of, do you have a favorite of the Christmas stories that you've read? I think You Can't Guess is a good one. Um, I wouldn't say I have a favorite, but I would say that they're they're all very different yeah. You know, they there's no formula. Yeah, right. Which I think is always a good a good thing, especially, you know, for keeping himself occupied while doing right. all of these. So definitely the hallmark of someone who who'd probably had his fill of being asked to do Christmas stories. For me, Shacktown is 
it's the it's the most indelible one for yeah. me. So let's not overlook our favorite panel because there's some beautiful ones and and funny ones in this. Sarah, do you want to start off? I do. Um, my favorite panel is when the engineers have been called in and they are looking into the cavern that has been created. My little, I just, I love how it's just these like stuffy old men. They're, they have white beards, but then there's this one owl and <laughs> one of them, his spectacles have fallen in. Yeah. And he's listening to where, uh, whether or not they've hit the bottom. I just think it's so cute how it's blocked, how there are some of these engineers that are off on this long board, you know, in the middle of the hole. And then there is a narration box uh, that some other engineers' faces are are kind of crowded around. Um, I just think it's just adorable and and well well balanced artistically. Yeah, I'm gonna have to come up with a backup because that was mine. Oh no! No, no, I'm I'm delighted. It's a great choice. It's a great panel. What about you, Warren? No question, great panel that Sarah discussed. I again, I, I go back to a couple of different things we've talked about in the past, and it's I like sequence of panels. The panel where Donald is just the rats just chewed up the five dollar bill, and he's walking off into the park. I I just love that look from his back walking away. That's a very memorable one for me. Uh, the the other one is the sequence of the map with the document unrolling, and I think watching the where the money goes and that, <laughs> the comic sequence there again with the engineers uh, is 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 just genius. But I think the most heartwarming panel is is on that last page, and that's this the children enjoying the joy of Christmas. I remember reading this and thinking what a happy ending this was, and this is how every Christmas should be. I was privileged, no question of it, but I grew up in a separated home. I never had my parents together ever in my life that I remember. So for me, this was what Christmas was, and I never quite had it that way. It was joyful. It was great. I got stuff, but this is like a pure joy where everybody's just around the table together. Yeah, well said. Really good choices from both of you. I like all of those. I like every panel with the engineer, honestly. Oh, yeah. uh, there are some very obvious panels. So I definitely want to mention, you know, the opening panel sure. is spectacular. The panel where the money has disappeared is spectacular. The closing with the great celebration is a wonderful panel. Um, as far as kind of like unexpected panels, I really like the one of uh, when Scrooge has moved in with them and Donald is pointing at him, sadly eating his oatmeal at the breakfast table. Yeah. That, that one just cracks me up. Yeah, Scrooge isn't even prominent in it, but he is because he's, he's the, like you mentioned the Simpsons early, he's like grandpa sitting in the kitchen when, he's, when he has <laughs> yeah. to stay with them. Awesome. So you guys, I think we covered this pretty well. Do you guys have any other... Any other thoughts about it? I, I didn't really talk too much about, um, I don't think there's anything that we have to be too concerned about it holding up. This one is, it's pretty timeless. There's um, here and there, it's a lot that signals that it does take place in the 1950s, of course. Um, I guess I guess a depiction of poverty in the modern world would probably look a lot different. You know, a shack town feels the idea of a shack town definitely feels pretty dated. As far as I know, this has never been adapted into like a DuckTales episode or anything. I know that a number of comic creators 
have done like not not quite sequels, but follow-ups to this one. Um, I got to, I think that Pat Block actually did a follow-up to this story who I've gotten to have on the show. I believe he had um, some of the Shackdown characters in one of his stories. And then of course, Rosa did a follow-up to this one. And I read, Mark, uh, just about the term Shacktown and, and it being that, that R. Crumb began his comic strip, The Underground Comic Artist, um, with Shacktown as the ba- background to his characters. That's so, right. And I think I, that was like a, a, a Barks reference, wasn't it? it? It was. He was a fan of, of Carl Barks. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Crum is a, um, a legendary underground comic artist. Excellent. Well, thank you guys both for joining me for this one. I really appreciate it. I look forward to having you both back. And uh, I invite people to join us for the next episode, which is going to cover that legendary story. Only a poor old man should should be something. It should it should be pretty great. So I'm really excited about that one. And thank you both. Thanks, Thanks Mark. for having us. Mm-hmm.